Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Tim Porter. Tim is a managing director at Madrona Venture Group, which he joined in 2006. Prior to Madrona, Tim was a key member of Microsoft's corporate development group. Since joining Madrona, Tim focuses on investing in B2B software companies in the Pacific Northwest. Madrona manages $1.7 billion and has had 68 exits. Some of the notable companies include Redfin, Smartsheet, and Aptio. Tim's companies are Heptio, Highspot, Algorithmia, and Lattice Data, as well as some others, right? We're going to talk about? Talk about many of them. Um, one of the things that I love most about Tim, um, I've known his wife, Jenny, for a long time, um, is that he is an amazing husband, father, and friend. And just uh, as a secret, I did speak with Jenny before this. But welcome to the podcast. Thanks thank for having so me, Shauna. It's yeah, fun to you, be thank here. You. I'm psyched. So I don't know if you've listened to the podcast before, but we always start with rapid fire. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Let me just get to my rapid fire. Hold, please. By the way, while you're going to rapid fire, yeah. Not only did my wife Jenny help me get on this podcast because you've known her forever, she is oh, also the why, fundamental reason that I got the job at Madrona too. So oh, maybe. because of Greg Gottesman, I did read that. Is that right? Among other things. Among other things. That's right. Well, you know, sometimes it's the woman, right? It, I mean, let's usually, be usually, <laughs> usually, often the spouse. Yes. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. I know that you're a fit guy. So, what's your favorite type of workout? Basketball. Okay. What position? Shooting guard. Nice. Okay. Are you a planner or are you spontaneous? Planner. What's the quality that you most often look for in an entrepreneur before investing? Maniacal customer focus. I love that. Okay. I also know that you love hip-hop, which is my jam. So Biggie or Tupac? Biggie. Me too. Yay. Um, What one word describes you as an investor? Helpful. And what is a favorite business book? Last year, my favorite one that I read was called Essentialism. Oh yeah, I've read, I've heard that that's amazing. Basically, it's it's beyond business. It's anything in life, how to focus on what's important mm-hmm. and not get pulled into constantly what's urgent or what's yeah. you know sort of nagging you. I got a lot out of it. Easy, short read, very uh, that's very been good recommended for anyone. So many times, water or mountains? Mountains. Yeah. Although I love both, I love the outdoors. Are you a skier or a snowboarder? Um, snowboarder. Um, and I'm actually just learning to ski after having snowboarded for the last 20 years. Oh, nice. Yeah. I grew up in Wisconsin. Yeah. I always say lots of snow, no hills. And so I didn't do either. And when I moved to Seattle in my early 20s, everyone that skied had skied all their life and people were learning to snowboard. So I learned to snowboard and have done that. But now I'm learning to ski because I want to keep doing it until I'm in my 70s. And I'm already envisioning the getting up and down off my butt. Yeah. You know, buckling into the snowboard I think bindings might be easier. I've never tried snowboarding because I'm scared of falling, and I'm also most scared of getting off the chairlift. To be totally honest, when I see that, I'm like, "How are these people doing that?" Yeah, I, that's it, hard, right? It's tricky. It, it looks really, really hard. Um, okay, so you already mentioned this that you grew up in Wisconsin. Um, one of my colleagues who actually helped me prepare for this podcast um, is from Wisconsin, and she was super excited that she learned that about you. She's super nice, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, I was about to say that um, several people that I'm friends with are from the Midwest. And I feel like I'm very drawn to, well, obviously nice people. But is that a true thing or do people just say that? Not to overgeneralize, but good people in Wisconsin. Just good people. No, I, I think, you know, it's you can't paint with too broad a brush, but I think people are very friendly. Yeah. Uh, and are your parents from there? Yep. Parents are there. Uh, two sisters, one's still there, one's in L.A. Where are you in the birth order? Uh, oldest. Are you the oldest? Yeah. I have one sister who's two and a half years younger. She works at Disney in HR with Imagineering, which I always think is oh, cool. Oh, really? And one sister is 13 years younger, and she works at Granger in their e-com group. And she lives where? She works in north side of Chicago, lives in southeastern Wisconsin. I grew nice. up the town I grew up in, Racine. It's bet- kind of between 
Milwaukee and Chicago. And do you guys have family traditions that you remember as a kid? We, our one vacation spot was to go up north yeah. uh, to my grandma and grandpa's cabin on a lake. And that was... Lakes are a big deal there. That was our that was our vacation spot. So yeah. lots of good memories doing that. Nice. You know, in preparing, I don't think I even realized that you're... Uh, so I knew that you're high achieving in your career, but I guess the pedigree part is helpful to learn about. MIT, right? I was the I was the Wisconsin quota or something, but uh, and so how was, does that, did you great, go to private school or experience. public school? I went to private school. Um, my mom taught there. Mm. My parents went to high school at this high school. That's so uh, cute. Racine Lutheran, and uh, it was very small. Our graduating class was only forty four kids. Um, the school had just over 200. We had a small class. and Did you like liked, it, like school with 44 kids? Yeah, I, um, I liked it. The, the other high schools in Racine is like 100,000 people. You know, the, there were three public high schools with 2,000 kids or whatever, and this one just happened to be smaller. But mm-hmm. I had a great group of friends, had a lot of fun. So would they say kind of um, in eighth grade, like, oh, for sure, Tim's like the friend that's going to end up at a top school? I don't not not necessarily. Uh, the the quick story on it is that um had applied to Big 10 schools, um Wisconsin, Northwestern, Purdue, and uh my one aunt and uncle, my aunt Jan called me up and said, "Hey, you know, you should try to take a flyer on, you know, you've gotten good grades, you should try to take a flyer, why don't you apply to Harvard or somewhere like that? We'll pay for the application." And I said, "Well, I really want to do engineering. If I was going to do something like that, maybe I would try MIT." And they're like, "Well, just do it." You know, so I tried, and surprisingly, I got in. And did you like it? Would you change it? Um, I did like it. You know, met some best friends in my life. It's um, I got to play basketball there, which is an oxymoron. I know. Well, in my mind, when you're saying like Purdue and these other schools, I'm picturing these big kind of college sports. You know, very different. Very yeah, different. Yeah. yeah. MIT is participation oriented. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so that was fun. I learned a ton. Learned how to work hard. Um, got exposed to a lot of smart folks, and uh, it was fantastic. What were you into when you were a kid? You started to say science and obviously basketball. Mm-hmm. You're a hooper scientist. Um, I I was into sports. I was into fishing. I was really like like that uh, with my family, and you know, just normal stuff. I was not like you know some early coder. Yeah, I'm actually just coming right off of watching the Bill Gates special on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it, but I'm in that headspace right now of like the brainchild that's, you know, the prodigy in eighth grade. Nope, that definitely not even close. No one is like Bill Gates, but definitely not. (laughs) You know, at MIT, I had a bunch of friends, you know, oh, oh, you know, I started my first company or I've been learning. That's what I I was none of those things. So did you feel (laughs) like you were kind of... um, uh, not undeserving, but did you feel like less than when you went there? Or you were like, fine? yeah, and I th- I think um, always have the outlook of you know have to work harder than everybody else and try to take that mindset into things mm-hmm. is a uh, is, is a good one. I think that that served me well. I remember the first. Uh, so this is funny. So I got there in 1992. The first coding class I took was second semester. So first semester was. Um, all the, the requirements were calculus, physics, chemistry. And then, so I took this first coding class. It was learning, it was introduction to C. It's called 100. It's kind of a famous class. And the very first question on the first problem set was email your TA. And I hadn't set up an email account yet. So it was mm-hmm. a whole semester at MIT and hadn't sent an email. So <laughs> it just, you know, that's how much times have changed. Yeah, and oh then, yeah, big time. Yeah, getting to that, I remember, would, you know, it took me like 40 hours to build the you know, the first program. And my, my friends who had grown up finished in 30 minutes or whatever. So. Yes, you're looking around like I yeah. better. Did you think that you wanted to pursue a career in engineering? Yep. I actually majored in mechanical, yeah. which I like because it was a lot of, it was sort of the most multidisciplinary. And econ too, right? Econ minor. And um, yeah, I was interested in, in tech companies for sure and wanted to do engineering. I didn't know exactly what. Um, I did this internship program where you got to work each summer for credit and money. Mm-hmm. And so that, and then it was a five-year master's bachelor's and you matched into one of a set of companies you interviewed at a bunch of them, but these were all pretty traditional mechanical engineering companies mm. like Ford yeah. and Michelin. And I matched at Warehouser 
and I uh, first time I ever came to Washington was to intern for Warehouser in 1994. And where kind of never left. I love that. Well, especially because you said you love the great outdoors. Yeah. This is like where to be if you're not going to be in Wisconsin. Um, and so you said that you did these kind of rotating internships. So different companies every summer, or they were Warehouser every yeah, I, summer. I worked for Warehouser three summers, mm. and the f- third summer was from June till Christmas or till New Year's. And uh, I got about halfway into it and got pretty bored. Um, no, I love Warehouser, great company. Mm-hmm. But um, it was 96, and I had uh, two other friends from MIT who had joined a startup in Seattle called Teledesic. And mm-hmm. they're like, you got to join. This thing's going to be unbelievable. They're building satellites. Bill Gates, Craig McCaw are the investors. And so um, I called up my thesis advisor. I said, I'm not done with everything, but I can I hand it in and be done with my bachelor's part and put the rest of the master's degree on hold? And he said, sure. And so much to my mom's chagrin, I mm-hmm. said, I'm dropping out of grad school and joined Teledesic in 1996. That's amazing. And so the timing of this, you said you dropped out of grad school, and then I know you went to Stanford Business School. So how, where did that fit in? Yep. So I, I worked for Teledesic for four and a half years, and then when the telecom internet bubble, you know, deflating, mm-hmm. um, I went. I applied to business school and went in 2001. Nice. Yep. So I worked for almost five years and and then went back to business school, which was which was great because I learned a lot at uh, yeah. at Teledesic uh, over those years. And what happened with Teledesic? Well, it it never launched a satellite, but okay. we never ran out of money. Um, so it it just decided was weren't going to be able to get it financed, um, yeah. given it was two thousand one, and the capital that was left over in the company actually became a, a local firm called Rally Capital that Dennis Dennis Weibling has ran for a lot of years, invested in local technology companies and and other things like mm-hmm. real estate. So it uh, basically folded up. It basically decided we weren't out of money, but we weren't going to be able to raise yeah. enough more. To, to go launch all these yeah. satellites. Um, you know, and they, so you went to Stanford yep. Business School. Did you apply other places, or that's where you had your eye on? It was great. It was really, it felt very fortunate. It was an amazing place. So the, um, yeah, no, I, the, the first uh, time I applied was to start in 2000, and um, I got waitlisted at Stanford. Um, I got into HBS. I sent in my uh, deposit to go to HBS, and um, and then a bunch of things happened and work kind of heated back up. And they're like, please stay. You know, we'll write you a good recommendation for next year. And so then I, I did. And so I reapplied the next year. And then I got in off the wait list. But the 100,000% best part of that whole story was that um, Jenny and I had just started dating when I was going to leave for Boston. And I got to stay for in Seattle for another whole year. Yeah. And then Nurture we, that. we ended up getting married. Yeah. Yes. So um, I was going to ask you on the podcast how you met her, but I ended up asking her because I talked to her right before. It was hilarious. So I worked with Alan. Mm-hmm. He was at Teledesic, was an right. attorney at Teledesic. And um, uh, he's like, yeah, I've got this friend. You should totally meet her. And let's all go out to dinner. And so we set up this double date. And then day of, Alan was like, oh, you know what? Something came up tonight. You guys just go ahead. You know, so That was, was his whole move? Yeah, it was kind of funny. Yeah, so it worked out. So we went to um, Cyclops when it was in on First Avenue in Belltown, first date. How did they describe her and how did they describe you? Have you ever asked her? That's a good question. I just remember you'll like each other. You'll think each other are fun. Yeah. You know, we like both of you. You should meet. That's so, well, good. They've got one. I don't know if they've got more under their belt. That's Forever, a skill forever right there. in their debt. Still, oh, yeah. still great friends. So you got another year here, and then you went to business school. For those listening that are considering, like, what to do, should I go to business school? Is it necessary? Is it not? Is that something you kind of across the board recommend? Business school is awesome, and it's. I've almost never talked to someone who said, "Man, I wish I wouldn't have done that." Right. Um, you can get a ton out of it, whether it's spending a couple years to think about what you want to do next. You can learn a lot of things in school. You can meet a big network. Yeah. A lot of people talk about the network part of it. And the network is huge. I think if you were only going to build a network, I wouldn't pay that much money. I think you actually have to want to learn something in school and to explore some different career opportunities or have some new doors open. But on the other hand, I don't think an MBA is necessary for anything. And so if you are very clear on what you want to do, if your goal is to go be you know, a corporate vice president at company X, your fastest path is to stay at company X yeah. and like 
do a kick-ass job and don't go spend two years doing business school. So it's not usually the most direct path if you know exactly what your goal is. But if you are trying to create option value for yourself and you want to explore some different things and you're not quite sure, it's a, it's a great investment. Yeah. I'm, I'm, for me, I'm really glad that I did it. Yeah. And do you think that it was something that um, helped you in your career? Like, did that link to anything for you that you can measure that's like, oh, that's what they said stood out on my resume? Not sure. I mean, it's, um, you know, I I think folks rely on schools, rightly or wrongly, as signaling. Um, So I think that's great. Um, I think more substantively, you know, spending two years going through hundreds of these cases is good training to think, see lots of different businesses now. Yeah. You know, it's not like, oh, I learned skill X yes. in class Y and I use that this week. It's the aggregate benefit yes. of all this critical thinking. Yes. And, and definitely the, all the people that I met uh, have been super valuable. Yeah. That as VCs, we rely on, you know, our networks to not just get referred into, you know, interesting companies or entrepreneurs or founders, but you know, we're always trying to find people who know more about a space than we do, yeah. which is usually not well, hard to find. And talent. <laughs> yeah, and for so, sure. And talent, for sure. Yeah. So that's uh, so it's been really helpful. Yeah. And so tell me about your experience at Microsoft, because several of the guests that I've had on the podcast, maybe because we're in Seattle, have had a stint at Microsoft. How would you describe that um, experience and their culture? I loved it. It was great. I was only there three years. I thought I was going to be there longer. I worked in corp dev, so M&A and investments. Mm-hmm. 03 to 06 was mostly M&A. And it was a fortunate time because 01, 02, kind of beginning 03, you know, the economy was down. Microsoft did very few acquisitions and investments. And when I got there, um, serendipitously, things started to really pick up a lot. And so the corp dev team had been fairly big and then had gotten smaller just because there wasn't as much going on. Mm-hmm. And then when we were smaller and I was there, a bunch of deals started happening. So I think What I, kind of deals were they? So I worked um, predominantly with server and tools, which now Microsoft calls cloud and enterprise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's SQL Server and Windows Server and their management servers, dev tools. So all the same things that I still, you know, have been investing in for the mm-hmm. last 13 years, all the same categories. And they were making lots of acquisitions. And so, you And so know, what is the role of somebody that's in corp dev? You're doing kind of analysis? Basi- basically and... to quarterback the deal. Mm-hmm. And so point on uh, coming up with valuation and negotiating strategy, actually negotiating the deal, and then mm-hmm. quarterbacking the, the due diligence and the overall deal process. The deal sponsor is always the business group. Mm-hmm. And whoever's the GM or the vice president who's in charge of product X or business Y which I also love because I got to learn and work with a lot of those folks. In fact, two people that I worked on acquisitions for when I was there, Soma, mm, Soma Segar yeah, and Ted Cummert, are both at Madrona now. And uh, Did you bring them there? It was a group effort yeah. for sure. Um, the, the reconnection with Soma was actually that he was um, an angel investor in a company I was on the board of called Boutique. And oh, the, yeah. the founder and CEO, co-founder and CEO, Boutique, Forrest Key, yes. had said, hey, you really need to reconnect with Soma and I said, yeah, I, I worked a little bit with him. I'm not sure he'd remember me. Anyway, and that was the reconnection point. And then, you know, built a conversation with a number yeah. of other people at Madrona. And it's been awesome. He, yeah. he and Ted, um, actually Terry Meyerson it's at Madrona now as well, also got to work on on some acquisitions for. So it was an yeah. amazing group of people, learned a ton, got exposure broadly across um, the enterprise software world. Yeah. And how would you describe the culture there? It's Microsoft, there were, there were and are a lot of really smart people that are trying to think big. It takes a lot to move the needle at Microsoft, as, as we'd say, and you have to build, you know, business that can only be 100 million is not even material in most cases. And so I think, you know, working to get things done with smart technical people um, and to think about how you build big scale businesses um, and, and how you build platforms mm-hmm. and how you think about ecosystems. I know I'm getting away from culture. Um, and I, you know, I was there three years, so I can't say I got everything. I think the biggest change maybe gets at this question, like when I came to Madrona and, you know, going from, uh, what Huge. did Microsoft yeah. have then 50,000 people here, yeah. you know, to, you know, 15 people was just, was you Madrona could just get 15 when you something joined? like that. Wow. Yeah. Maybe a little bit bigger than that, but, um, you know, it's just, it was so much faster to get decisions done. Yeah. So that was the frustrating part about 
Microsoft is, you know, especially when it was something like M&A, like you yeah. couldn't make a big decision without having a 20 person, you know, plus meeting usually. And it took a long time to get those set up and yeah. preparing for them in a Madrona. It felt like you could walk down the hall, get together with one or two other people and, and make decisions a lot more quickly. So that was refreshing. A wonderful part about Microsoft is you were always working on a global scale and, you know, all over the world. And but you it was hard to be in touch with what was happening here locally. And Madrona had been focused on Seattle. So that's been awesome to really focus on the local ecosystem, Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I viewed it at Microsoft like dealing with the friction of all those people and slow decision processes. Like you just needed to embrace that and figure out how to, you know, still get things done. Yeah. Um, without getting sort of lost in the politics of it. Yeah, I, I can imagine I would probably not do very well in that type of environment because I, I don't have patience for it. Yeah, you, that's you, the problem. you need to have, some, pa- okay, need to have some patience. Yeah, you got to have some patience. Yeah. So, so speaking of Madrona, though, I know that you are like office mates with Scott. Yes. I love that. How many years is that? As Jane says, my work husband. He's your work husband. It, it's pretty funny. So we've always, Madrona's always had the bullpen. And the mm-hmm. bullpen is usually the associate team, two or three or four folks. And so when uh, I started and I was in the bullpen with Suja Vaidyanathan, and then Scott started a few months later, maybe it was six months, maybe a little bit less than that. And so the three of us were in the bullpen. And as things changed and the team evolved and we moved offices and everything, he and I always just kept officing together. Yeah. And uh, we still have. And he works on a lot of more consumer things and I work on a lot of more enterprise things. Mm-hmm. And we have fun keeping track on what's going on and have both, the, the both quick. Are, both are cool. What would you say to a entrepreneur who's trying to catch your attention? Um, what do they need to do to prepare to present and pitch to Madrona? Yeah. Great question. Um I think it is always best if we haven't sort of reached out and tried to tap on your shoulder and say, hey, can you tell us about what you're doing and how to help to try to find some warm referral? You know, it's it's pretty easy to probably find a mutual connection in Seattle with somebody, mm-hmm. you know, at Madrona who can say like, hey, I know Beth and she's great at X, Y and Z and you should mm-hmm. really meet her. Not that. But on the other hand, it's a little bit of a myth around like, oh, you can't get a meeting with a VC. My emails on our website. Yeah. And I respond. I mean, if it's totally... I mean, do you meet with everyone? Because it's similar to like recruiting. I mean, 10 today that are like, can't hey, meet with everyone. Right. Can and I try, pick your and tr- brain? That's and hard. just don't have all the time today. And also try to be respectful of the entrepreneur's time. If it's just not a fit, I try to tell you that up front. Mm-hmm. But if it's not a fit for something I know about, but, you know, Scott or Elisa or Dan or so, you know, does know more about, then try to socialize internally. Mm-hmm. And Madrona has, our bias is like, we would like to meet. Our bias is to meet with kind of anyone in our purview, early stage tech, predominantly Pacific Northwest, because you just never know. You know, mm-hmm. it, it may be, if not this meeting, down the road. Right, or you build know, a relationship Build now, a relationship. For sure. Um, hopefully be helpful, you mm-hmm. know, in that meeting, give a piece of advice or be able to make an intro. So the bias is to meet. We can't meet with everyone. Um, and you know, we get some kind of off the wall things that come in sometimes. And if it doesn't seem quote credible, then we don't necessarily respond, Mm -hmm. but otherwise I always try to respond. And so the best way to get a meeting is through a warm referral. But if you don't have one, then, you know, just, just send the note. But but beyond the the meeting, beyond the meeting, the thing that gets my, the thing that gets my attention and we invest really early. And so nothing's too early, you know, only, only early like seed. So we do seed. And Series A is kind of our historic sweet spot. Each fund sort of breaks down about a quarter of the initial investments in our companies, our seed. And we mm-hmm. just define that as an initial check of less than a million dollars. Like 60% are what classically has been called Series A. Now, a lot of Series A's are called Series Seeds. But it's sort of, you know, 2 to $5 million initial investments from Madrona. So that's always been our bread and butter uh, and then that last 15 or 20% of investments in each fund, call it three to five investments, will be Series B and C. Mm-hmm. And now we have an, another fund that we call Acceleration Fund that we're going to be able to do a few more of those B and C sort of, let's say, five million and up you know, types. But the bread and butter is you know, sort of that first institutional round. And the things that really gets my attention is people who have identified, back to this, you asked me in the rapid fire, the maniacal customer focus is even if you're brand new and you don't have a product in market yet and don't have revenue, is that you've identified a customer pain point and that you've validated it through 
sort of thorough vetting, and that can be a lot of different ways. Maybe you were the customer before. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, you, you, you run pain. your business, Sean, yeah. and you're like, why doesn't anyone, you know, have this? Right. And so that's a good way. Or you identified it somehow, and you went and talked to 25, 50, 75. You did, you know, you did a set of things to validate this pain point, and you know you can build a solution to address it. I mean, that's the fundamental equation of a mm-hmm. business, right? If you, if you can answer those things, you've got a business, and then we as Venture Fund have to sit there and say, Okay, how big is it? How many of those customers are? But yeah. I love just starting with that. Yeah. You identified a pain point that you really understand and you can build a solution to fix it. And so, I mean, you've got all these other investors sitting next to you. And just like a recruiter, you can get to the end different ways, different different types of styles. Some might be more, in your industry, might be more investing in people versus ideas. Yep. Are you both or which one if you had to choose? Yeah. The idea or people. the people? People, the people, for sure. And you know, there's sort of this classic, um, you, it's people, it's market, and then kind of, so it's the pro- size of product, the market. product or technology. Those are sort of the three you know, kind of, you know, legs of the stool for mm-hmm. any, you know, when we sit around and uh, try to evaluate and decide are we going to invest or not, we literally talk about those categories. There's related things like, is it the right market timing and who's the competition? Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, it's people, market, and product. So somebody's... Um... You know, an entrepreneur at Amazon right now, and they're thinking that they've got this amazing idea and they have a co-founder and they've come up with it. When they're looking at these three areas, what should they do to kind of ask themselves if they are ready or are a fit? I think it goes back to this point about have you identified, you know, prospective customers who said they would, you know, pay for your service. Mm -hmm. And before they come to you. Yeah, I mean, it's less about coming to us and more before you sink your life yeah. into pursuing yeah. this thing, your right? Time it's sort of like, it's one thing to, you know, come in, you know, chat with us for 30 minutes or 60 minutes. It's another thing to sink all it all the time into it. Yeah. But you know, back it's about the team, right? Yeah. Because at the beginning, you know, one of our partners Matt has said this a lot, you know, you the best you can hope for is that you're directionally correct because you know you're specifically wrong. <laughs> I that, like that. Um and I've so it's all about that. iterating, you know, and to, against some vision that you have. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what's the biggest misconception about what a day in the life is as a VC? Yeah. Well, I don't know if this is a big misconception, but m- mostly what we do and what I do is try to help and work with my portfolio companies, our portfolio companies. And so I think there could be a misconception that you're sort of sitting back and saying, Where's I'm going to make money? these bets yeah. and I'm going to put you know some chips on right. this and you're some chips on that. And yes, you know, if you think about this, you might spend, you know, anywhere between two weeks and six months doing diligence. You know, sometimes it can take a little longer. And then we spend eight to 10 years, you know, with yeah. these companies. And what is the structure of Madrona versus other structures of VCs? I think we're f- probably pretty typical. And so our, we have an investment team um, that's made up of, you know, managing directors, venture partners, partners, principals, associates, and mm-hmm. um, who all work together in kind of teams of two or three, both to evaluate uh, new investments and then partner to help those companies once we invest. Our decision process is a whole team. Everybody in the whole team weighs in. We have another uh, team that's a super integral part of Madrona that are sort of the, the portfolio operating executives, talent, who you know well, strategic communications and marketing, sales and biz dev, user acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we all work closely uh, together to try to help the portfolio. So that that's kind of the fundamental team. That's like we have that a, structured. And so in we 2000... have a great back office and support team, too, that well, I'd be yeah. remiss not to mention the fabric of, of our culture. You have a great culture at Madrona. When you started in 2006, if you could talk to your younger self now and say, I wish I had known X, Y, Z. Is there something that stands out? Well, I think, you know, tying it to this sort of people market product, I think um, if you talk to anybody who's invested for any period of time, they'll all say it's about the team. And so I think you could, you know, fall in love or pursue what seems like a great market or a great idea. But if the team is not all there, and by all there, I'm doing air quotes right now. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, you only have a few founders and then you build out but kind of having that initial right raw material, mm-hmm. it's actually it's really hard to recruit people. <laughs> you know, people no say they want to join startups, but then it's like, wow, well, there's always a million a, reasons yeah. not to join. Do you know anything of, about that, yeah, Sean? Exactly. <laughs> do you have a go-to list of questions um, to vet 
people? I don't know about go-to list. I mean, some of the things that we like to listen for, um, founders who have this right mix of really strong conviction, but also want to listen. Uh, and not listen because, like, we want people who, you know, listen to us and, no, and or, or whatever, but listen to a lot of people right. who seek out data. Who are who curious see, Who also. are curious and yeah. seek out data to get to the right decision, but have really strong conviction. Any good founder that you can think of, if you can mentally through your mind, ha- like, have this vision. They've got a conviction around it, and they are going to not let anything stand in their way to achieve that. And that type of just, you know gut drive is so important because there's so many risks. Mm-hmm. There's so many reasons beyond, why this is going to fail. Yeah, for sure. But beyond the founders, the employees, yeah. like the types of people that you are just like, oh, we're looking for a chief product officer and this person's only worked at, you know, big companies. Yep. How do we know if they're ready for a startup? So this is great. Um, one of the things when I talked to uh, Oliver Sharp, co-founder of High Spot on the Madrona podcast, we talked about this, yeah. and I'm going to use his quote, which is, he likes people that wear rubber gloves, not the people that wear white gloves. <laughs> so I, I think this- no- Or no gloves. Or no gloves. This notion of people who really want to roll up their sleeves and yeah. work hands-on, yeah. I think that's the key thing that you have to try to suss out. Mm-hmm. And if you mostly want to general manage or direct the troops, mm-hmm. I think for so many reasons at a startup, you have to do it yourself. Yeah. The obvious one, there aren't other people to do it. But then the maybe less obvious ones that those early employees, even beyond the founders, if you don't first really figure it out firsthand, you don't you don't get the right learnings about the customer, the product, the market. So I think that's the fundamental one. I like the the gloves part. I also have seen a couple of people fail who aren't used to not having resources. Totally. So they're just not. It's related, right? They don't have that like grittiness. They're, They're fine to work hard. But they're thinking, well, where's our PR agency? Like, or, you know, or where's our marketing firm that we work with? And it's like, no, you're the everything person. You're pulling the data. You're telling the story. Grit's a good yeah. word. Yeah. You have yeah. to be willing to put your hands on the keyboard, pick up the phone, and just do it directly. Yeah, I love but it, that. But it's fun. You ha- and you have to revel in making big strategic decisions that have a lot of downstream impact where you probably don't have a lot of data around it and are risky as well as go write the copy, you know, yeah. for the job description you don't yes. have, you know, or, or whatever, right? So you get to do both. And mm-hmm. I think people that relish being able to do both those and can contact switch and the fact they're doing the hands-on things, understanding the details allows them to make the bigger calls, you yeah. know, more effectively. Do you always take a board seat with all of your just, investments? Just about always. When do you not? Sometimes on a seed investment, if we're just a very small, you know, participant, sometimes at that really early stage, the company might not even have a board. Mm-hmm. And how many uh, boards are you on right now? I'm on 11. Okay. Holy, you know what? We've actually sworn on this before, but I just learned that we can't, but I'm going to keep doing it. So holy you, you, shit. You can't blow your family I, rating on no, uh, it's fine. iTunes and or it, what? We're way past that at yeah. this point. So yep. you're on 11 boards. So what does that require of your time and what makes you a good board member? Um, in terms of time, it's always the highest priority. And so if, uh, you know, there's lots of things we do looking at new companies, taking first meetings, meeting with folks who are interested in, and really amazing folks who are interested in leaving their current things to join startups. We like to do all those things, but in the ruthless prioritization time, those 11 companies come first. Mm -hmm. And so whatever it is that comes up, um, you know, that's what I try to pay attention to. Fortunately, there's generally... Don't all 11 have something that, you know, every single day. Right. And there's sort of a rhythm to it around board meetings, around fundraises, around product launches, around, you know, whatever it is that's going on. So you'll spend more time certain weeks than other weeks. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, just tactically try to set up a a coffee if most of the companies are in town. In fact, of the 11, I think, um, see, seven I can walk to. Oh, that's great. Which is nice. And uh, one of the seven that I can't walk to, actually, the the CEO lives pretty close. And so we basically every couple of weeks, we'll have a coffee on the calendar. Usually like to do early in the morning before everybody's schedules get crazy. And so then you kind of have this regular check-in to talk about stuff. So, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to see uh, Christina in, you know, three days. I don't have to call her right now. We'll talk about it then if it's not time sensitive. So that's a nice way to make sure you're on top of things. Mm-hmm. You don't just show up to board meetings, you know, about, you know, what's happened. You know, I would like to yeah. try to stay involved and engaged in what's happening. So yeah. then you can actually help in a, in a higher bandwidth kind of way and don't need a 
all of this explanation and all right. the data. So you're already kind of up to speed. And so yes. now it's time to decide or help on X or try to go land this, you know, new hire or whatnot. You can sort of jump in. Yeah. And what is the current temperature on the Seattle market? I think the tech market continues to be super hot broadly across the country. Um, despite, I mean, in the public market, some of these highest growth SaaS companies and technology companies have had a little pullback in their multiples here over the last couple of weeks. And that there's an overall view of pretty highly valued in mm -hmm. some of these cases. And it's pretty frothy in the valuations and the competitiveness for rounds for private companies. So I think everyone realizes that's not going to last forever and it's going to slow down to some degree. And as early stage investors, that's probably a good thing. Yeah. So I feel like there's this overall, okay, it's really hot and it's not going to stay this way forever, but it's just, keeps, double down. It, it just keeps staying hot. Yeah, it does. You know? And too. so we're, see, we're busier than ever. I mean, it's kind of freaky in a good way. It doesn't mean that all the, um, that it's it's translating to revenue and to deals closing because every candidate that's any good is getting multiple offers. Multiple offers. Totally, and counter offers. So in it's Seattle crazy. is is as you know and are saying is particularly hot because you've got our big anchor tenants who continue to be you know hiring mm -hmm. infer and all the infernos offices. and all the engineering offices has yeah. been really the story you know over yeah. the last five plus years and then the startup scene is really benefits from those you know these these satellite engineering offices they hire here locally and fight over local talent but they're also bringing in talent yes. and the big companies people kind of do their tour and now they want to go start something yes more of the people at big companies like microsoft didn't necessarily grow up there their whole career they maybe worked at a startup before and so mm -hmm. they kind of have that dna and then the virtuous cycle of just multi-generational seattle startups yes. you know where one startup you know, goes and, you know, has a has a good exit, take Isilon Systems. The founders were from Real Networks. Then the Isilon founders founded Cumulo and founded Igneous and found, you know, so they go on and... It'd be interesting for somebody to... Well, I think I just saw an article where they were talking about the Real Networks kind of minis that have come out of Real Networks, but just in general, an overall map of the Seattle yep. tech ecosystem would be super cool. It exists. Where is it? So, where do I so find WTA it? has kind of owned this Pro, this project and there's okay. been two versions are you on the board i used to be len jordan is oh, now nice but so yeah there's a couple cool visualizations and i know they're in the process of, of building that again but the idea of the original it. one was sort of solar systems okay. and so you had you know the sun the suns were yeah. amazon microsoft boeing macaw cellular yeah. university of washington and then these orbital rings around them yeah. and then the most recent one which was a number of years ago is more of a constellations kind of theme. Hmm. But uh, yeah, no, it's cool. Yeah, the thing on Real is amazing. What an amazing group of people. And then there was GeekWire did that yeah, one. And I then they did one. this one on Aquanov, which was cool also. Yeah, Aquanov Am amazing also. family tree out of Aquanov. And like we could go down the list, right? Yeah, it's, it's cool. Super cool. And so not to put you on the spot, because this is a uh, obviously another hot topic, but what are you or and Madrona doing about the gender pay gap and also the... Um, the lack of funding going to women. Yeah. The imbalance in female board directors and female founders are two things that we both think about a lot. I'm interested on the on the gender pay gap. I it clearly the data says it exists. I'd say my firsthand experience in that is that that's less of an issue that females are getting paid well and similar the same better whatever right. than male counterparts but we need more more volume and so that that seems to be the thing that we spend a lot more time thinking about mm -hmm. um on the board at the board level there's an org organization that we support and and our partner hope cochran is one of the leaders around called onboarding women that's yes. that's trying to cultivate cohorts of women leaders who can and are interested in joining boards, both private and ultimately public companies. We're actively across our companies looking to add independent board members. That's something we do anyway. And thinking about um, what the balance uh, from a diversity standpoint, gender, age, point of view, I mean, all those all things, it, but especially yeah. females. And on, on founders, um, you know, we've, we've backed uh, an a significant number of female founders, we'd love to back more. You know, we'd love to see more. Right. We actively sort of, you know, seek out and uh, and are looking to back more. And then on companies, you know, really trying to hold our founders accountable to not just say, I mean, every startup says like, oh, yeah, we want to build a great culture. We want to have a diverse workforce. And then there's the ones who actually build a diverse workforce. Yes. I'm interested in your point too, like what's the key to building a diverse workforce, not saying you just want to, and actually holding accountable for 
number of people you interview that you're inter- you know if your funnel doesn't represent you know the the balance across diversity then your final hires aren't going to either sure. and you, it's hard to, I, in my case in my experience to metric your final hires cuz you got to there's a number of things that go in it but you can definitely metric your funnel so that's mm-hmm. one and then hiring women leaders early i think is the biggest that's what i was going to say is driver. the key the biggest, the, the biggest key for sure and and then it's also a slippery slope that if you have a team that it's you know your first n number all look a certain way whatever that way is each additional hire that they all look like it More just becomes likely, harder sure. right it just becomes harder and so really address it early and especially in leadership mm-hmm. that that then because that those leaders then can help recruit and and build the right culture across the whole Absolutely. organization we share that opinion that yep. it's it's got to be early because it's also hard not only to just recruit them but to onboard them and and make them feel included in the culture if it's like a bro culture and it's the one woman um especially for engineering teams we've had companies call us and be like we'll pay you double if you can find us women and it's like we found them but they don't want to work there they won't come <laughs> they won't yeah, come right and it's um, totally a virtuous cycle once you kind of get rolling on the on the culture then it yeah. builds on itself and it becomes easier yeah no, I completely agree. So um, I'm curious to know, I told you when we started the podcast that I called Jenny because I was, I, I can just tell you that you have an amazing reputation. And um, in my mind, I'm not looking for the kind of um, skeleton in mm-hmm. the closet, but it's more like, what do you really like at home? And I called Jenny and she, I said, what's one word you would use to describe him? And she said everything, which was so sweet. I was like that crying was so and gagging. <laughs> And, um, yeah, she just talked about how what a good person you are, what a great dad you are. And it just sounds like the words are very consistent to describe you. Um, I'm sure that's overly kind. Thank well, you. Well, what are the weaknesses? That's kind of what I want to know. Do I pay you now? or what? <laughs> just pay me later. Just pay you later. What are, what okay. are the weaknesses? That's what I want to know. Good question. What are you working on to try to improve yourself? I think that one of the things we always think about is how do you reach decisions early and as quickly as you can and of course be right one um, book that we all read last year was called thinking in bets annie duke is a famous poker player and wrote this and it's about how think about the right decision process and not just outcome you know you can have a great process and get unlucky in the outcome or you can have a bad process and get unlucky in the outcome and so um, i think trying to push myself and the firm to do strong work on new ideas and reach a decision quickly. And by that, mm-hmm. you make a good impression on the entrepreneur. You get in deals sooner, which is generally the earlier you get in, the better the returns ultimately are. And you're more likely to uh, win those, you know, those deals. And by sitting back and waiting and hand-wringing and not sure and let's wait and see if this gets farther traction along, then you're more likely to lose those deals. Mm -hmm. You know, for Seattle companies to say, yeah, I mean, met with Madrona early on. They had lots of chances. And now finally things are going well. And I got lots of people knocking on my door. An area for you for improvement is personally to try to... Early decisiveness. And do and do and do it. Get to the... the, I'm just kidding. Exactly. I couldn't couldn't even say it. it. Tim. I couldn't even say it. Yeah. <laughs> net net it for us. Come yeah. on. But it, and there's two parts of it. It's it's early decisiveness, but having done enough work to have the data to do it. Because I think you in this business you can also just you know be lazy and say, oh, I don't like that one. I mm-hmm. like this one. You have know. there been any that you've taken a flyer on that you're happy you did and like you pushed really hard, or that you passed on? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the companies that I kick myself the most for not finding a way to having invested in is Auth0. So I had lots of conversations with John Gelsey when he was the founder then. And it's not totally, it's not clear we would have absolutely kind of won our way into the deal, but there was a lot more we could have done at different points in time to have had a chance to do that. Always loved the business, loved the team, and just kind of overthought it, mm-hmm. I Do think. you ever survey people? I just thought of this right now, but do you ever survey, like, why did we, we either lose the deal or, hey, what was your experience like with us? So we definitely do postmortems uh, on deals that we didn't get in or passed on um, that we wished we would have. Or for sure if we lost. If we actively said we want to invest, we gave a term sheet and we didn't win. So we, we do postmortems around those, including talking to the founders afterwards mm-hmm. and say, you know, what could we have done differently? 
we for from after we meet with founders if you know and we can only we only invest in a super small percentage of the companies that we meet with we do actually send a follow-up mps survey this is a newish thing that we've done over the last year mm -hmm. um and literally get feedback on you know was the interaction the the, the classic nps you yeah. know kind of would you refer somebody else and then try to get some qualitative feedback on was the meeting productive useful and try to hold ourselves accountable mm -hmm. to that. Did we follow up in a in a meaningful time? So we yeah, try to do a set of things. That's interesting. And yeah. what about as a board member? So we, as a firm, we survey our CEOs, um, and then as individuals, we probably each have different styles. And I like to ask the founders I work with periodically. And then there's usually some like, sort of end of year. What yeah, what else yeah. can I do? Like you know, I think part of that relationship is we should try to give feedback to founders and management teams. Yeah. And I would say, like, look, I'm not saying I've got all the answers, but I get to see a lot of different companies have been doing this for a while. For sure. Here's kind of what I'm seeing, and yeah. let's talk about it. Yeah. And then I ask them the same question. It's, yeah. You know, I'm sure there's plenty of ways it could be better uh, in helping, but, you know, you just try to, it's continuous improvement, right? You're yeah. trying to constantly learning, try to be better each each week or each year. And which of these companies um, are you most excited about right now? Are you allowed to say? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the I'm, favorite I, child. Who's the favorite right. child? I'm I, I'm excited about all yeah all my children. Uh, I have two children. Thirteen and ten. Thirteen and ten. Yeah, oh, seventh you're in the grade thick and fifth of it. grade. Yeah, it's oh, a lot. Yeah. It's a lot of We're fun. We're right in the same zone right now, I mean, except for that when you have an extra one that's in ninth grade. <laughs> <laughs> so much fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's a few companies that I'm excited about for sure. Um, you know, one that's had a real breakout last year plus is High Spot. Uh, they're in the sales enablement space. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say to your earlier question about taking a flyer on it, but, you know, Robert and Oliver and, and David, the the co-founders there, it wasn't a straight line to success. You know, it took a little while. They had a product vision that's been a very steel thread through the whole experience of around more beautiful, easier to use ways to share and find and search for content underpinned with machine learning. But the way they've become the leader in the sales enablement space wasn't always obvious. And it's very gratifying to see them succeed and how the culture that they've created and how fast that they're growing. So yeah. that, that's one that I think is, I've is heard particularly great things about exciting. Them. I don't know them, but I've heard great things. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And so on to your kid kids. Okay. Because also you have a, a meeting coming up. So I, I'm gonna I let can't, you I can't talk about the rest of my companies. Come on. You can. We'll talk all day. Do you want to? You can. I'll, you don't want to look like favorite child. High spot. Okay. If I had to, if you I, get a shout out high yeah, spot. Yeah. We'll have you back on to talk about the Sounds other ones. Sounds good. I want to talk about your kid kids because okay. I also know that you're an amazing father. Have you been deliberate about what you want to be like as a dad? I think there's kind of two things in general you try to pass on to your kids. And I don't know, we're always the best at sort of being super formalized around that, but just want them to uh, work hard to do their best and take personal pride in like, I want to do my best, mm -hmm. whatever it is. If it's like the dishes or yeah. it's, you know, math, there's, you know, something important. Can you but come that, to my house? Right. So, so and yeah. then I want them to have the self-confidence to believe in themselves and the humility to just always be humble. Yeah. And so I think those are, are really, you know, and then love your family and yeah. your, your mom and, be and, nice. and, and, but, and honestly, and be kind. And yeah. Those are, those are kind of the, the main things yeah. hopefully that they will pursue. And I know that you are really good about prioritizing your family time and that you're home for dinner. I've been Most told. of the time. That's good. Yeah. You got a good grade on that one, except for when you're that's, traveling. That's probably and then you're, generous. Yeah. And then you're also coaching the kids. Um, sport, sporting activities and just kind of being there whenever possible because I know your job is super demanding. Um, how do you take time for you and when are you kind of in your happy place? I, I'll, I've always loved the Madrona culture going back to when I started that it's very collaborative. I think there's good people and, you know, part of that is, you know, everyone works hard but they try to get home and have dinner with your families mm -hmm. or whatever and then, you know, work later in the night. Not Not uncommon but that's sort of what we do. Um, and try to, it's not, you can't do it all the time. There's, you know, board dinners and different things and, and certain evenings or try to be home as much as, as much as it can. Uh, I'd say my happy place is if it's just for me, I, I do still like to play basketball and hopefully I'll be able to avoid injury for a few yeah, more years. Yeah, don't blow out your knees like half and my I, friends. I, I do, I do like that. 
I do love um, snowboarding and being on the mountain and outdoors, especially with, with my kids. That's that's definitely a happy place. Love to go to Idaho and love to go to northern Wisconsin. I'd say those are my those are my happy places, yeah. especially and, with family. And do you have any um, rituals? Are you like one of these, I get up early and I meditate or I get up early and I work out? Or I like to get up early and get work done. So you work in the morning? I work in the morning, yeah. So I, I like to wake up early. I think it's my most productive time before meetings. Mm-hmm. Just think clearly, have my coffee, yeah. do a bunch of work and email at home early, and then, you know, get going and have meetings start. Yeah. Uh, and do you have any creative outlets? Like cooking or I like to read, music? Yeah, you, you know, I like to read. I like to, and I, I like to read fiction, you know, so. What are you reading um, right now? Um, I am reading uh, Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. Ah. And uh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's about kind of the birth of independent India, but it was a famous work of fiction. It won the Booker Award in 1981. And then the Booker Award gave the best of all the Booker winners for 40 years, and it was this book. And uh, my thing lately is that I'll get the physical version mm. and I'll get it on Audible. Yeah. And then I can listen in the car. That's and then perfect. and then at night I still like yeah, to have have a physical book. No, it's like efficient, right? That, that's super yeah. efficient. I like to read business stuff, but at some point I can't yeah. re- I can't Your read more business like, stuff. Fried. I can't read more emails. So I like to read uh, I like to read some fiction. Yeah. And that's so, not exactly creative. But well yeah. no it is creative because it's like letting your mind wander yeah. in a creative way. How do you stay informed? Like what do you read? I know you don't want to read business stuff all day long. Part of the but... morning rituals read all the different, you what, know, what so do you read? I read the information, I read Recode, I read TechCrunch, I read GeekWire, I read 451, I read lately Tom, Tom Krasitz's new, um, is it called Mostly Cloudy? It's his Partly Cloudy. Partly Cloudy. He, he'd written for GeekWire. Um, so a lot a, of reading. A, a bunch of those. Yeah. And yeah. what would you say ultimately fuels you? That's the name of the podcast, Tim. What fuels you? Um, in my professional life, I get the most uh, joy from and sense of fulfillment from seeing helping entrepreneurs be successful, seeing them be successful, and then making our investors successful because of that. Venture is interesting in that week in, week out, it's so hard to know if you're doing a good job because the paths of startups are so you know up and down and then up again. But over the long term, it's so black and white. Like, what did you return to your investors? But you can only, I think, do that successfully over time by being someone that entrepreneurs want to work with and actually helping them. And so when entrepreneurs are successful and make a bunch of money and impact the world, like, that's just the best feeling. I'm sure. It sounds like the dream job. And yeah. you're good at it. So thank it's you lucky. for being on the podcast. Thanks, Shauna. You're awesome. Yeah, so Really fun. appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.